And uh, this particular Advent season, uh, as a church, you'll be going through different sermons about longings. And so uh, the title for the sermon today that Pat asked me to do was Longing for a King, or Longing for the King. And uh, I don't know about you, but the idea of longings isn't something I like to dwell on very much. I kind of pass over it quickly. I think we're probably conditioned as Americans to try to assuage our longings, to fill them with something quickly and not let them sit there around too long, or we get nervous about them. I think, at some level, I think of a longing as a sign of a weakness at some level, something that um, somebody in a weak position would want something, and I want to be in a strong position and not need anything at all. So longing is not necessarily uh, an idea I attach myself to very quickly. Um, Sometimes I even associate with temptation, like something I shouldn't want, and yet I long for So one of the things I hope for this season of Advent for you um, as a church is to sort of make peace with the idea of longings that you have in your heart and how they might be holy longings. Um, What's a holy longing? Well, I don't know exactly, but I I think of this verse in Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And just to emphasize it, he says it again, more than watchmen for the morning. As if to say, imagine those men on the walls, on the ramparts, waiting for the morning, wanting their shift to be over so bad. They're sitting there in a very vulnerable position. It's dark. They can't see clearly if someone might be attacking them. It's probably cold. And when the morning dawn breaks, they're off their shift. And it's like, that's how much I want to long for the Lord. So that might be an example of a holy longing. And I, I, I hope that as you discuss longing over Advent, that um, your heart will turn as well, and be more comfortable with the idea of longings. I'm thinking about when I was a kid, there were a few things that I really longed for, and I'm curious if you have things like this in your life as well, but uh, I remember I grew up in Egypt, and so about every four years we would come to the States on furlough, so, uh, so I did spend first grade here and sixth grade here, so I had a good idea about what American life was like, but the thing that I was longing for when I was in Egypt was grass. I would long for green grass. <laughs> And I would see a little patch of grass. I just remember being overwhelmed by it. Sometimes in Egypt, like you see a little, like, oh, there's a, there's a park, and it has a little bit of grass in it. And it would just give me this sense of longing for the United States, actually, for what I considered home. Um, and then in the winter, I longed for snow. And I, I really, really wanted to experience snow. And um, it was sort of sad each winter that I didn't have that experience. Of course, when I came back to the States in high school, then I found myself longing for the things of Egypt and the, the bustling city streets and the honking at night. I would sit in my room at night and go, where's all the, where's the noise? I need the noise. I need the streets of Egypt. So longings are a funny thing, but we kind of grow up experiencing a little bit of that, um, knowing that there's things that we're missing out on and really wanting. Um, so I wonder what your longings are this Advent. But my guess is not many of us sit around longing for a king. And so this morning as we talk about that, I want to challenge my own heart and yours as well. As we consider, what would it look like to long for King Jesus, for his return? And to what end? What, is, what does he come as king to do? Our passage today in Isaiah um, 9 is a great passage of stoking, invoking the idea of a longing for something that, that the people don't have at that point. And it says right from the beginning, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given. This is said in the context of a passage that promises light to a people walking in darkness. It talks about, and I think uh, Andy or JJ, somebody read 
um, the beginning of that, uh, about the yoke of the, uh, the boots of the trampling warriors and the battles being, uh, and the garments being rolled in blood, being burned as fuel for fire. So that, so that there's this overarching sense of peace, like no longer do we need the instruments of war. Why? Because to us a, son is, a child is born and to us a son is given. Now that's interesting. As soon as they say a son is given, I think the Israelites immediately heard the context of, David, of the promise to David, where God promised David that a son of his, one of his offspring, would rule on the throne of Israel. And so as this is given, this passage is given, the sense of all eyes are on this child to come. Who is this child to come and when will he be born? It's like, all the, it's like that song we sing uh, about Bethlehem, actually, that says all the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's like all the hopes and fears of the world are being addressed to this one tiny child. And Isaiah is saying, look to him. In the middle of tumult, in the middle of darkness, in the middle of war, look to this child, this one child. All the hopes and fears of the world will be met here. Now this comes at a really awkward time. I think it would be good for us to look a little bit at the context of what the Israelites needed at that time in a king and why they might long for a king. And then we'll look at our context later. This is mid-8th century B.C. King Ahaz... One of the descendants of David is on the throne. So they're not lacking for a Davidic king at this point. They have a king. And so it's kind of odd that Isaiah would ask them to look for a coming king. But this king, King Ahaz, is not one of the good guys. He's probably one of the worst kings of Judah. Now, if you remember, Israel and Judah had split at this point already. And there were many bad kings in Israel at this point. But many of the kings of Judah had at least nominally given some uh, form of worship to to Yahweh, to Jehovah of Israel. Um, King Ahaz, uh, one of the worst. He actually had already, by this point, sacrificed his son to Moloch. He had adopted the pagan ways of the kings around him and done one of the worst sins possible. And there was also a lot of political turmoil in his time. Uh, The king of Israel, who might have been a good friend and ally, was actually an enemy. Israel and Syria had combined forces to take on Judah and try to conquer them. And so they were allied against him. And so what a king of Judah ought to do in a time like that is cry out to the Lord. Cry out for help to God. So instead, well, first of all, he's defeated by the king of Israel, King Pekah. 120,000 people were killed, men were killed in one battle, one day. 200,000 of women, children were captured. And what does he do? And actually, in 2 Chronicles 28, it gives the reason why they were conquered. It says, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. So they were in a, a state of being punished by God. And the king turns to the great king of kings. Not God. The king of Assyria, of course. He reaches out to the superpower nearby and says, come and help me. Be my ally. Help me fight against Israel and Syria. Tiglath-Pelesir of Assyria says, sure, that sounds like a great idea. And he brings his armies. And he does defeat Israel and Syria, and while he's at it, he basically becomes the overlord of Judah as well. He doesn't let him just sit there and uh, prosper on his own. No, he has to become uh, a vassal state as well. So the king Ahaz, this king Ahaz makes this very weak, he reaches out in desperation for a greater king and finds himself just looking like a very weak king at that point. Um, he continues to just act so foolish. He, he, he goes to Damascus. He, makes his, he pledges his fealty to the great king Tiglath-Pelesir of Assyria. And 2 Chronicles 28 says, 
in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, the same King Ahaz. He doesn't stop there. He continues his downward journey, pushing against God with all of his strength. He ends up sacrificing to the gods of Syria. He actually sees an altar in Damascus. He, he decides we need a copy of that altar in the temple of Jerusalem. And he sends word back to Jerusalem. He says, here's all the instructions. Please build this. And so the priests in Jerusalem, before he even gets back to the country, are tearing down the altar that God had given Solomon to build. And they're reconfiguring all the furniture and they're making an exact replica of what they saw in Damascus. You can just see they're trying anything but coming to the Lord. They're trying the ways of the people around them. He continues to put altars in every corner of Jerusalem and high places to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. And in this context, Isaiah says, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. You see, the people of Israel, deep in their hearts, those who were paying attention, at least, they knew that this was not a good king. They knew that their king was failing in every way, and they were longing for something better. They grabbed their ideas. They knew what a good king should be like. Um, in Deuteronomy 17, God, while giving the law to Moses, lays out what a good king ought to be. He's one that God has chosen. He's one from among the brothers of Israel. And so far, Ahaz fits the bill. He's been chosen and ordained by God. He's, one, he's an Israelite. And God continues to say things that the king of Israel should not do. He should not acquire many horses. In Deuteronomy 17, he says, That's the way of Egypt. You shall not return to that way again. It's not by military might that Israel will become a great nation. The king should not acquire many wives or extra silver or gold. And it says, lest his heart turn away. God is very interested in the king of Israel having his heart. He wants a king who turns and moves according to the will of God. In fact, he says, when this king sits on the throne, he needs to write out his own copy by hand. The king, not a scribe, he needs to write out the copy of the law so that he can keep it with him and read it every day and follow its ways so that his heart will not be lifted above his brothers. God's looking for a king who doesn't see himself as better than everyone else, but as one who serves a king, that God would be the king. Now, did Israel ever have that kind of a king? Not completely, but David came close. And in David's reign, we see something beautiful happen. God actually comes to David. So David has established his kingdom. He's um, forgiven a lot of his opponents. And he's ruling in righteousness in Jerusalem. He builds himself a palace. He says he wants to build God a house. You probably know the story. And God comes and says, no, you're not the one to build a house for me. But I am going to do something for you, David. I'm going to make your name great. And he promises him the land. So this was already part of the covenant. That God would, be, would give the people the land and that they would dwell securely in the land. And the other part of the covenant that always is mentioned is that God would be their God. And they would be his people. And in the Davidic covenant, God takes a step closer. And he comes right up to David and says, I will be your God. In other words, I'm going to build a house for my name in your house. Your thrones will last forever. There will be a righteous king who will serve me forever. And I will be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. God basically takes the covenant that he's made with Israel. And he focuses it directly on David and says, The relationship I have with Israel, I want to have with you and your son. That's what a good king should be. Representing the, all of Israel by having this close, intimate relationship with God. 
Here in Isaiah 9, we see what a good king ought to be as well. And he continues it by saying, and the government will be upon his shoulder. This refers to an insignia, probably. The key of David is mentioned in Isaiah 22, and then we see it again in Revelation 3, where Jesus is holding the key of David. And this is just a symbol of authority. Um, in those verses, it talks about this king will be able to shut, no one else will be able to open. And what the, this king cl- closes, no one else will be able to open. I don't know if I said that right. But the idea is ultimate authority, the ability to make final decisions. So this king, with the government upon his shoulders, this is the good king. Of course, this is Christ. We see it again in Revelation. We see Christ ascending this throne and taking the, this authority of the house of David. And what we see next, as he's describing this great king, is the name. Now, this is, this is not a name that's given to him to kind of walk around and say, this is my name. These are epithets. These are what is added to a king's title to kind of explain what kind of king he is. And, and what the kingdom also will be like. Because one of the principles in the Bible is, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Um, we see an example of this in 2 Samuel 23. It says, these are just epithets added to David's name. It says, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse. There's one. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. There's two. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. So these are like epithets, titles added to a king's name to kind of give us an idea of what we should consider important about this king. So this king that is to come has these four amazing names. And they're both divine and human names combined. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The wonderful counselor, we often use wonderful to sort of mean nice. Oh, that's wonderful. But this actually means evoking wonder. Something that creates and inspires awe. And of course, Jesus is a counselor who teaches his people, guides them in truth with this amazing clarity. Of course, as we look through the New Testament, we see examples of this over and over, beginning when he was even 12 years old. He's in the temple, and he's asking and receiving questions from the leaders of Israel, and they're amazed at this young man and his ability to handle the truth of God. The Sermon on the Mount is a great example of how Jesus is a wonderful counselor to us. He gives us amazing truths, uh, loving our neighbors, loving our enemies. Um, the, the, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are, people when, blessed are you when you are persecuted. The types of clarity that Jesus brings to his people in the Sermon on the Mount it says at the very end that the crowds were astonished because he had authority. He taught with authority, not like they were used to with their scribes and teachers who sort of equivocated back and forth on what every little text of the word of God meant. Jesus knew what it meant and he spoke it clearly to them and challenged them and challenges us today in the same ways, through the same words. He is our wonderful counselor. This is the man who taught the way of the kingdom through the parables and taught us through simple stories and led simple people to understand deep, deep truths and at the same time confounded the wisdom of the wise and learned. This is Christ, as Paul says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is our wonderful counselor. He's also our mighty God. It's quite amazing that Isaiah would make such an astounding claim about a child to be born. It must have, been, must have rocked the Israelites' world when they heard these words. Isaiah had already described him as Emmanuel, God with us. Um, so, you know, you could kind of say, okay, lots of names in the Old Testament sort of have words like that attached to them, like something about God. But here, 
Isaiah digs in and says, no, this child really will be God. God with us. Part of that covenant pledge that God had made with his people. If you remember when the people chose Saul to be their king, God said, they have rejected me as king. So now God is saying, on this throne of David, I will reign again. Somehow in this child, God will become the king of Israel again. It's quite incredible. He's given to us as a son. And um, there's hints of that all through the Old Testament. We see it in Psalm 110 where the Lord says to his Lord, where God says to the Lord of David, who's actually his son, sit on my throne until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus says, this is an example, this is proof that I am not only the king, I am God. I was before David. I'm preeminent. He is the almighty God. This is our king. The next title that's given to him is Everlasting Father. Some commentators think that this means he's the father of eternity, which could be. But I think this, this is not to confuse us in terms of the Trinity or roles within the Trinity. This is speaking about the kind of reign that this king will bring. He will be like a father to his people. An eternal reign of a benevolent king. The kind of king who puts the interests of his people ahead of his own. Like a father might for his own children. This is definitely not possibly referring to King Ahaz, who seems to only be trying to claim little shards of power from the broken pieces all around him. No, this is a king who doesn't grasp for power, but spends himself so that others might be lifted up. This is the king who, maybe it could be said of him, that he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. In that sense, Jesus is an everlasting father, that kind of a king to us. And finally, Prince of Peace. You guys did a great job. You talked about the Prince of Peace this morning. This all-encompassing peace that comes with Christ. The Shalom. Um, I'll just add, and as we see the candle of peace here, let me just add one idea to that, what you said this morning, which in Isaiah has already given a picture of the peace that's coming with this king. And his, the picture he gives is of a mountain. And all the nations of the world are coming to this mountain. And they're bringing with them their weapons and they're laying them down. That alone is a glorious picture. But that's not enough. In that picture, the people begin to use human ingenuity and creativity to take those instruments of war and turn them into plowshares, turning them into instruments of culture and building and settlement and growth. It's a, it's a reversal of the way that the kingdoms of the world work. Instead of stockpiling weapons, they're actually stockpiling good for one another. And I think we already heard from... Uh, one of the Kobe's this morning from John 14, where Jesus says, peace I leave you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is our king. This is King Jesus. So this is what's promised to these people. And it's supposed to evoke in them a longing for something better than they have. And I wonder where we stand today in our own hearts. We don't have a king. None of us would want a king in the United States of America. We don't mind peeking over the ocean a little bit and watching what's going on over there. But none of us really want to have a king. But we will still be ruled. We do want to be ruled. I've been struck as I've been teaching a Shakespeare play at school that the language of love is often mixed with the language of ruling. So in Twelfth Night, the Duke Orsino wants Olivia to be his lover and she can't because she's being ruled right now her affections are being ruled by her grief for her dead brother and he imagines a day where cupid's love shaft will 
hit her in such a way that it will overrule and that he will become the king of her heart. Later in the play, the same lady um, falls in love with a different guy and says to him, oh, say so and be ruled by me. And he says, I will. And they get married. And so this idea of, she's like, I want to be the ruler of your heart. And he says, yes, because he's a smart guy and he knows a good thing when he sees it. But I just, as I hear these, this language, I never use that language with my wife. Like, I want to rule your heart. But this is the language of, you know, I, I, we've been learning over the last few years from James K.A. Smith, this idea that our affections are rulers in our hearts. And they direct us where we go, what we do. They basically tell us who to be. So we have to watch our affections very clearly because that is how we are ruled. And here in America, of course, we... Our greatest love really is autonomy and freedom. We don't want anybody to tell us how to live or how to be ruled. But listen to this. I want to read from Ephesians 2. It's almost like a parallel passage to Isaiah 9. Now, Ephesians 2, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he says, as humanity, we start at this position of being ruled. We're being ruled by a prince. Prince of darkness. Prince of the power of the air, he says. And he equates this rule with, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our affections, according to Ephesians, are the way in which we are ruled by the prince of this world, Satan. It's no secret that he would go for the affections of our hearts. That is how he wishes to rule and reign. We'll come back to that passage in a minute, but first I just want to ask you a question again. What is that holy longing? What would it look like to have a holy longing? These people described here in Ephesians 2 are walking in darkness, just like the people in Isaiah's time. Walking in darkness, they need a great light. Their heads are down. They're thinking about their own affections, what they want. And that is the rule that they are experiencing. And I think what we need instead is to be able to lift our heads and look at a different kind of vision like Isaiah is giving the people and saying, here's a glorious vision of a king that would rule your heart in a beautiful way. And so we need a vision of this king. We need to adopt the vision Isaiah gives these people and say, this is our king. And the rule that he wants to bring is so glorious and beautiful that we want to become right now people of that future. We want to take that vision and apply it in our day. And so in Ephesians, we see a hint of this. It says, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now listen to this language of kingship. He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's this image there of Christ being the reigning king and we being gathered up to him in that space. So that in the coming, and that's a present reality. In the present reality, we are able to rule and reign with Christ in a spiritual sense. And then there's a a promise for us as well. So back in Isaiah, we haven't looked at this part of the verse yet, but it talks about this expansive kingdom. And here we see that uh, Paul says the same thing. In the coming ages, there's an expansion of that kingdom that we can experience now. It's going to happen that this, might, that this will happen. 
that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the loving expansion of God's kingdom. There's a way that right now we can experience him as a wonderful counselor, as prince of peace, as the almighty God in our hearts. And there's also this place where we look forward to his coming back and expressing himself in kindness to us and pouring out riches and blessing upon us. We right now have Jesus as our king. It's no doubt about that. In the Westminster Confession, it talks about how does Christ execute the office of a king? You guys probably read this a few months or weeks ago. Um, it says he subdues us to himself. In Psalm 110, it says his people will be willing on the day of battle, on the day of his power. He is making a people right now who are willing to follow him, who are willing to be part of his array. It says he rules and defends us. Right now, we are already delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, according to Colossians chapter 1. Christ is now ruling and defending us in spiritual ways from darkness, from sin. It talks about restraining and conquering our enemies. Jesus is right now putting his enemies under his feet. And there's still yet the great enemy to be conquered, death. And so we're still railing against that enemy. And yet that day will come as well when death is no longer an enemy because it's going to be obedient to God. So what do we do as we wait for this king? How do we live in this moment? What is our holy longing to look like? And I found these words about a king coming in 1 Timothy 6, and I think they're really appropriate to close out this sermon this morning. First of all, he talks about, he's talking to Timothy, he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the fight, fight the good fight of the faith. And then he says, I charge you to keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. So as Christ is coming as his glorious king, Paul says, what is our life to look like? We are to be emblems of this kingdom. What does it mean to obey? In some sense, it means to, be, to have allegiance, to have allegiance to this king, not to any other king offered by this world. And this world will try to ask for your allegiance in different ways, whether it's in politics or career or in your reputation and the number of likes you get. Like all these ways that, the, that our world says you can prosper and succeed here, Paul says, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, he says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So not only is obedience just this like keeping the law, which is great, but it's also a way of saying, I'm with this king. I'm with the king of righteousness. It's his kingdom that I'm expecting and waiting for. And so it's for that reason, I will give my life to righteousness and holiness. That's one of the things I want to challenge us to do this morning. As we look at this passage, it closes with, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. God is right now, Jesus right now is establishing and upholding this kingdom with justice and righteousness. But it's an expansive kingdom. It's not one that will just, um, it doesn't stop where it is right now. It's, it's an ongoing reign of grace. And it's supposed to expand. And what God is doing in the present age is he's pulling his people together and saying, we will live 
according to the emblems, according to the statutes, according, we will be signs of the kingdom. This church will be an outpost of the kingdom of God in a very confused country, not sure who to worship, not sure who to follow or obey. Even as we see our, our, our culture fracturing all around us, we know who we belong to, and we live a certain way because of that. This empire of grace um, basically is saying, I mean, this passage in Isaiah basically tells us the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. We know that history is going the way God intends for it to go. Isn't that amazing? This week I decided, silly me, I decided to learn something about South China Sea and I wanted to find out a little bit about India and China and I watched a couple of YouTube videos and I scared myself silly. It is like, you do not want to look at what's going on in the world. It is scary. But then I came back to this passage and I said, wait, this is where my heart will rest. This is where I will be. I know that the kingdom of God, that Jesus is on the throne, that he is establishing and upholding it with justice from this time forth and forevermore. I can count on it because the zeal of the Lord is behind it. He is backing this kingdom 100%. And so my question for you this morning as we leave is this. Will you serve this king? Will you adopt the insignia of this king? Will you wear his robes of righteousness? Will you be known as one of his followers? Will you put your trust in this kingdom? Will you bow down before him and no others? Will you go home today and consider where you might have been worshiping false gods, worshiping false kings? Let's give our allegiance to him today and to no other. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess that we do not long for you as we ought, but we pray that during this season you would stoke our hearts in such a way that we would long more and more for the goodness and the grace of your kingdom and your rule and your reign in our lives. No matter what the cost is, Lord, we do want to obey because we know that in our obedience to you as our king, we are ushering in the greatest, most glorious kingdom that has ever been known on the face of the earth. We're thankful that that's what your plan is. We're thankful that you have put every single resource behind it, that we can trust in its power, and we can trust that we're on the right side of history. But Lord, we, uh, as we sometimes forget, we tend to walk in the darkness with our friends around us. Help us instead to have a vision of the glorious King Jesus the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Lord Jesus, you are the blessed, holy sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You alone have immortality. You alone dwell in unapproachable light. To you, Lord Jesus, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.